the taste for alcohol wouldn't have stayed in our gene pool and the right to drink and consume alcohol would not have stayed in our cultural repertoire unless it was doing some positive things that outweigh the cost. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, do we have alcohol to thank for civilization? Most of us have had the experience of scrolling through Instagram and seeing a photo of a great party and feeling a momentary pang of FOMO, the fear of missing out. But recently I experienced something unusual. FOMO for a party that happened 11,000 years ago. It was a gathering, perhaps one of the first, of hundreds of hunter-gatherers in southeastern Turkey having a multi-day rager. So how do we know about this? Back in the mid-90s, archaeologists started excavating a site near Urfa in modern-day Turkey called Gobekli Tepe. And as they cleared away the sand and dirt, they were shocked and not a little bit confused by what they uncovered. More than 60 T-shaped pillars, each made of limestone, each weighing around 15 tons. These pillars were so enormous, and they'd been lugged such a long distance from where they were quarried, that archaeologists estimate that it must have taken 500 people to get the job done. And for what? They found no evidence of habitation at Gobekli Tepe, no houses, no livestock, no grain silos. Instead, what they discovered were scattered shards of broken cups and stone basins that could hold nearly 40 gallons of liquid. This led them to an intriguing conclusion. Those massive vats weren't meant to store water. They were used to brew beer. 11,000 years ago, Gobekli Tepe was the site of the world's first ever keg party. The implications of this are truly remarkable. It means that the desire to make beer, which is, of course, the desire to get drunk with our friends, came before the decision to settle down, farm the land, live and work in close quarters. Our ancestors didn't build civilizations and then stumble on some fermenting beer at a bread bowl left out in the rain. They built civilizations, so the theory goes, because they wanted to brew beer. And in the 11,000 years since, we've all been pouring libations in their honor. Today, we're quick to point out alcohol's sometimes catastrophic side effects, and for good reason. Drinking has plenty of health costs and plenty of social costs, too. But the discovery of Gobekli Tepe makes you wonder. If our taste for alcohol, derived from grapes and grain, is ancient, if practically every society in history has devoted an incredible amount of time and energy to getting drunk, and if that tradition is still going strong after all these millennia, which it is, then is it possible that booze is more beneficial than we give it credit for? The answer, according to an intoxicating new book by my guest today, Edward Slingerland, is a resounding yes. Edward's book is called Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. It combines anthropology, history, philosophy, and scientific research to show that intoxication may very well have led to civilization. But he doesn't stop there. He argues that even today, we can and should tap into the benefits of alcohol. 
I have to come clean and share with you that I'm not without a bias going into this conversation. My own relationship with alcohol is every bit as enthusiastic and fraught with potential peril as that of our broader species. Like many people, maybe many of you listening, in the last 10 years, I've really tried to clean up my act. I exercise almost every day. I've been intermittent fasting for a few years now, and I eat a pretty healthy diet, at least healthier than it was. The one unhealthy habit I cannot kick is drinking. Most evenings, I have a couple drinks. And I'm talking about a proper pour, not the stingy technical allocation. When I'm with friends in a social environment, I've been known to drink substantially more. My inability to quit the sauce or reduce it, I'd like to take a few nights off a week, probably a good idea, thinking of starting with Tuesdays. My inability to quit the sauce has confused me. Is this just a failure of willpower or do I just really like it? And if I really enjoy drinking, is that an indication that something positive is happening? I've struggled with this and my conversation with Edward was clarifying. I connected with him while he was at home in downtown Vancouver. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Edward Slingerland, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks for having me. You are a distinguished university scholar and professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia. You have a PhD from Stanford. You've written eight books. Your latest, Drunk, is a fascinating book about the deep and complex relationships that humans have had with alcohol for much of our history. You write about the under-recognized social and creative benefits of alcohol, as well as its dangers. Did you write any of this book while drinking? <laughs> Not at first, which was a problem. So it's funny, I had, when I, in the proposal stage, I had written about 10 versions of the book proposal. And my agent kept sending it back to me and saying, this isn't, this isn't working. So, you know, all the science was there, the history was there, the basic arguments were there. But it just wasn't popping. It didn't draw you in. And I realized the last, you know, 10th time she was like, not yet. I thought, oh, you know what? I haven't taken my own advice. I actually, I, I talk a lot about connection between creativity and alcohol in the book, but I hadn't actually written any of it drunk. <laughs> so I, um, I quickly remedied that. I was on a business trip. This is pre-COVID, obviously. I was in New Zealand and um, was going to go out and meet some colleagues for dinner, but I had about two hours. And so I went down to the hotel bar with my laptop and ordered Negroni. And by the end of Negroni number one, and I think about the first sip of Negroni number two, what's now the first three pages or so of the book just revealed themselves to me. The subjective feeling was taking dictation. I didn't feel like I was writing anything. I felt like part of my brain was just telling me what to write. And that became the beginning of the book. And, and that was a direct result of writing at 0.08 or so blood alcohol content. So when you refer to coming up with the, with the opening lines, I'm guessing those lines were, people like to masturbate. They also like to get drunk and eat Twinkies. Not typically all at the same time, but that's a matter of personal preference. 
Yeah, yeah, that only comes to you at 0.08 PHC. Yeah, that, that so, sounds yeah. that sounds Negroni influenced right there. Yeah, 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 that definitely was. Well, now that we're prying into your personal life, Edward, um, sure. I have another question for you. What is your relationship with alcohol? How how often do you drink, and and how much do you tend to drink? I drink daily. Uh, I have wine with dinner every night. So yeah, I I characterize. I drink. I would say kind of Italian style. So ideally, just with meals. Although this has changed, I think that like many people, COVID lockdowns have made my drinking a lot less healthy. Uh, I think I've noticed I've been drinking more being in lockdowns. I'm in a long distance relationship across a closed border. So every time I've traveled to see my partner and come back, I've had to quarantine. So I've spent a good chunk of the pandemic literally lo- you know, locked down in my apartment alone. And that's one of the, one of the messages of the book is that this is really a healthy way to drink. We're we're not designed to do it, and it's a evolutionarily kind of novel situation. I've gotten more worried about my drinking during the pandemic, and I'm hoping that now that lockdowns are ending, you know, restaurants are open again, people are going out and meeting at cafes and bars, that I'll get get back to a healthier, kind of more social focused drinking pattern. Well, I can relate to your your commentary about feeling you know, like you're you're still optimizing your your relationship to drinking <laughs> because my own relationship with alcohol is complex because I think I, I think I like it too much. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and no, I mean, like, like, yeah, me too. <laughs> I mean, like like a lot of people, I've become increasingly responsible with diet, exercise, sleep. Yeah, but booze is the one area where I'm just not aligned with the official medical advice, which has not been moving in our favor. Yeah, um, yeah. So as you can imagine, reading your book was just a joy for me. It was <laughs> it was a joy of both the intellectual curiosity variety, just totally fascinating, and also yeah. the joy of confirmation bias of of right. like reading right. things I wanted to hear. When I started your book, I thought I drank a bit too much. By the end, I was leaning towards the view that I might not be drinking enough. Um, okay. All right. I'm going to be responsible for that now. And you contact me in 20 years with cirrhosis. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I mean, to be fair, I mean, I do think it's necessary to say on the front end that this book is not a reckless endorsement of unbridled drinking, right? You talk extensively about the dangers of alcohol, and we'll get into that later in the conversation. But I think your core agenda, if I'm reading it correctly, is what you call a defense of ecstatic chemical joy. Yeah. I just think that our our discourse around intoxicants is hampered by at least two separate things. Uh, so one is the lack of a accurate scientific and anthropological framework for talking about alcohol use. You know, the dominant theory about alcohol use is that it's an evolutionary mistake. You know, it's a brain hijack. Alcohol just happens to trigger reward circuits in our brain, and we're very clever primates, and we figured that out. And so... We're just, we're using it for that reason. And it has no adaptive value. It's just kind of a parasite of the brain. It's, it's an impoverished way to talk about alcohol because we're not seeing all of the social functions it plays. And we don't understand, I think, from a scientific perspective, how its adaptive benefits have paid, have paid for the costs. And there are all sorts mm-hmm. of really horrible costs to alcohol, but it wouldn't have stayed the taste for alcohol wouldn't have stayed in our gene pool. And the uh, 
the right to drink and consume alcohol would not have stayed in our cultural repertoire um, unless it was doing some positive things that outweigh the cost. So that's, that's a big part of the book is trying to correct our misinformation about alcohol. Um, but then part the other reason I think um, our conversations are, are not great around this topic is this kind of weird puritanism. And I think it has to do with this kind of discomfort with pleasure that's part of this weird um, puritanism that mm-hmm. you find in Northern European cultures that have this kind of uh, Manichaean view of pleasure, not just mm-hmm. intoxicants, mm-hmm. but sex yep. too. You know, it's either it's kind of binge or, or forbid it entirely type of attitude. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get into it. In honor of this occasion, I thought it might be appropriate to crack open a couple beers, despite the hour of the day. I have here a, a Montauk Wave Chaser India Pale Ale. Wow, sounds good. Okay, so I have a Hop Razor West Coast IPA from House Sound Brewing. So very local. Wonderful. Okay, here, here, here it goes. Shall we? All right. Well, let's get into it. Let's let's start with. Big idea number one, beer before bread. So the standard story we've been told about the origins of human alcohol making is that humans figured out agriculture at some point. We settled down and started growing crops. And then sometime after that, we noticed that if we left these grains sitting around in some water, Maybe we left uh, some sourdough starter a couple days too long. It turned into something interesting to drink. And so we discovered things like beers as an accident, as a kind of side product of agriculture. When I started looking into the archaeological record, however, it looks like it's actually the other way around. So the uh, beer before bread hypothesis is that it was actually the desire to get drunk, the desire to make chemical intoxicants, that motivated humans to first settle down and start growing crops. And archaeologists who've been arguing for this point look at sites like Gobekli Tepe. So this is a a ritual site in present-day Turkey that's probably about 10,000 years old, where hunter-gatherers, we know they didn't have agriculture at this time, were gathering, building these monumental structures. It looks a little bit like Stonehenge, these massive stone pillars carved with animal shapes and having some kind of blowout ritual. <laughs> no doubt, we we're not entirely sure what they were doing. Uh, we know they were, they were holding rituals and they were feasting. So we have the remains of feasts and they had massive vats that contained some liquids that they were consuming. And we don't know for sure, but it's, it's highly unlikely this was water or tea. Um, they were, we know that people were making beer at this point. So the, the argument is that it's the, the desire to make more and better beer that encourage hunter-gatherers to start, start settling down and focusing on domesticating plants. And we see this not only in, in the, what's called the Fertile Crescent, this area of the, the, the Mideast where uh, agriculture started, but in other areas, so other parts of the world, the first crops that are domesticated tend to be ones that are good at intoxicating you and not necessarily ones that are good for making food. The idea that at core, it was fundamentally our desire to party together, right? To have these like beautiful, rapturous collective experiences that this was the catalyst that drove agriculture, cities, civilizations. I mean, it, it's really a pretty dramatic rewriting of 
where we come from. Yeah, and it was surprising to me that this wasn't more widely known. It wasn't known to me before I started doing research for the book. So I already had a sense that you know alcohol was playing this important role in, in helping us adapt to civilization and helping us be more successful as cultures. But when I started reading the archaeological literature, I was like, wow, it's actually, you know, quite literally gave rise to civilization, if this is true. And and you point out that a lot of the early grains that were first farmed were not good for making tacos or, or bread products, but they were very well suited to making alcoholic beverages. Yeah. So the, you know, there's uh, Teosinte, which is the the ancestor, the wild ancestor of maize or corn in South America. And uh, again, I didn't, I didn't know this, but uh, Teosinte is apparently makes really bad grain products. Like if you would want to make tortillas out of it, um, but it makes very good chicha, which is this beer-like substance that's still made and drunk in, in South America today and made, made now from maize. What this means is that if this, is the plant that was discovered and focused on and cultivated and turned into maize, it, it probably is the case that its primary function was to make alcoholic beverages because you wouldn't have noticed it if you were interested in something to make food with. Where this gets really interesting is you make the case that not only was alcohol arguably the catalyst for early large-scale human gatherings and then the dawn of agriculture and civilization, but it then also became necessary for humans to manage the stress of living in closer proximity to each other, right? So it was, it was this kind of early inducement to, to get together en masse, but then it also became a little more a, a potentially a, a stress reduction mechanism to manage these more intimate living uh, conditions. Is that right? Yeah, so it was, it was both a, a motivation to settle down, and then once we did settle down, it was a tool for helping us cope with that, because the transition from hunter-gatherer lifestyle to early agricultural lifestyle must have been a shock. Uh, you know, it's hunter-gatherers live pretty kind of cognitively diverse lifestyles. They're relatively egalitarian, they're wandering around a lot, and then you're moving into a, a let's say a village lifestyle where you're now living in a fixed place, you're living on top of other people, you're crammed into rooms together, your diet is impoverished. So instead of eating a variety of wild plants and things, you, you know, game, little bits of meat, um, you're eating a lot of starches now um, that, that are kind of boring and not super nutritious. And there's stratification. So, you know, maybe you're at the bottom of the totem pole now and you're having to negotiate social hierarchies in a way you didn't have to before. It had to have been really stressful. And so so my argument is one function of alcohol is stress reduction. Um, and this is, you know, ancient cultures, the, the, the Hebrew Bible talks about you know, the role of uh, wine and taking away sorrow. And you see very similar things in early writings from Mesopotamia and China as well. It's a way the mood enhancement and stress reduction are a way for people to cope with the stresses of, of agricultural life. And I, I think that, you know, people in modern societies popping open a beer or pouring themselves a glass of wine at the end of the day is, is doing exactly the same thing. So another thing I found fascinating is how motivated humans have been for, for many thousands of years 
to produce alcohol and protect their source of alcohol (laughs) for a very long time across we're not talking about it. We might think about, oh, Northern Europeans are big drinkers and everybody else was just enjoying cannabis. I mean, one of the cases your book makes is that this is a deep part of human history. It's true across a broad range of cultures. And you say, um, it should puzzle us more than it does that one of the greatest foci of human ingenuity and concentrated effort over the past millennia has been the problem of how to get drunk. Even small-scale societies on the brink of starvation will set aside a good portion of their precious grain or fruit for alcohol production. So, you know, it's it's been this powerful, enduring appetite. What does this tell us? It tells us that our taste for alcohol can't be an evolutionary mistake. It can't be this kind of um, hijack or byproduct. Just because of the the amount of effort and resources that go into satisfying this desire. I open the book talking about masturbation because masturbation is a classic example of an evolutionary hijack. That is an evolutionary hijack, right? So pleasure is a reward from evolution for doing what our genes want us to do. And they reserve the most awesome reward for the thing that most directly serves their interests, which is reproductive sex. And so the orgasm is the best thing that can happen to you. And for good reason, because it's, uh, it's the biggest carrot they have to offer. Um, but people and other species even have figured out ways to game that system, right? We figured out ways to get that reward in non-reproductive ways. And, but in that case, evolution doesn't care very much because it overall pretty much works and the, and the costs of non-reproductive sex are pretty low. But it would, you know, if you notice that cultures around the world made the center of their attention setting up masturbation centers and kind of making, you know, organizing masturbation on a large scale and devoting, you know, 50% of their resources to making sure that people got a chance to masturbate regularly, then you'd have to start thinking, whoa, there's maybe something else going on here, especially if it was an ancient thing, you know, if this is something you see for millennia and millennia going back. And so in my mind, the, the, this is one reason to doubt the standard story we've been told which is that our, our taste for alcohol and other intoxicants is a mistake. It's, it's got to be more than that. Yeah. And, and you point out that there are enough disadvantages to drinking that there really needs to be very meaningful benefit, right, to, to offset all these liabilities that drinking brings with it. But those benefits have not been adequately explored until until now, <laughs> right? Until, until, uh, and, and that's and that's somewhat of the agenda of this book. Yeah, to lay out what the fun. There's got to be functional benefits, and it can't just be. It can't be pleasure, because again, evolution doesn't uses pleasure as a tool to get us to do things, but it's not interested in making us happy. Well, and, and, and it's an interesting cultural moment for this because the reputations of cannabis and psilocybin and other hallucinogens have really been meaningfully rehabilitated, but somehow this sort of generosity, <laughs> right, that exists in, in, in intellectual circles towards cannabis and hallucinogens does not necessarily extend to alcohol, right? I think there's still yeah. a bit of a perception that whereas cannabis is a sweet smelling natural plant <laughs> that's growing out of the yeah. earth, you know, alcohol is, is this kind of manufactured, <laughs> like, 
yeah. uh, 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 more coping mechanism um, that doesn't share the same sort of exalted qualities. And I think that's what makes your book so interesting to me is that is is that you, you're kind of making the case that like, well, wait a second, you know, th- this is actually in many ways the uber intoxicant. This is the, this is the, yeah. the toxic that's used around the world across cultures. It's not an accident. And we're not looking closely enough at the benefits. You're right. There's a snootiness about alcohol, especially among educated liberals, in the sense that, you know, cannabis is cool. Psychedelics are definitely cool. There's some justification for that. You know, alcohol is really dangerous. And unlike cannabis and psilocybin, it's physiologically addictive. So those are much safer drugs. And it is physiologically on the whole more damaging to you than than cannabis uh but you know the, the as you point out the and as i argue in the book there's alcohol is the king of intoxicants there's there's no nothing else is even close and that's for good reasons so i argue that if you if you had a team of cultural engineers and you were like look we got to get a bunch of hunter gatherers to stop screwing around hunting and gathering and get settled down, you know, start working together to get technology going and get large scale societies off the ground. It needs to do X, Y, and Z. It's gotta be, it's gotta be precisely dosable. It's gotta be easy to make. You have to be able to make it out of everything. Uh, they would come up with alcohol. So cannabis, the downsides are, are many. So it has really variable psychological effects across individuals. It's also hard to dose. Whereas if you and I are sitting down and drinking the same beer together and we're drinking the same number of pints of beer, we're, we're drinking the same dose of alcohol. And then psychedelics, the problem with psychedelics is that they so remove us from connection with reality that they're pretty useless as social drugs. You can't, there's never gonna be, there's never been a culture and for very good reason um, where people trying to figure something out sit down together and do large quantities of psilocybin, you know, before trying to sign a peace treaty or conclude a business deal or something like that, because it just they they're really long lasting. They disconnect you from reality for whatever six, eight hours, ten hours, and it's a really serious disconnection. You're you're rendered pretty much incapable of doing anything. So it's it's always been a niche intoxicant in that way. Whereas alcohol is used by everyone, everywhere throughout history. And it's because it has definite advantages as a, as a social drug. It's time for Edward and me to freshen up our drinks. When we come back, we'll talk about the link between alcohol and creativity. It turns out the old advice to write drunk and edit sober is scientifically sound. We'll be right back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome back to the show. 
Edward's about to get into his second big idea, which is that one of alcohol's most interesting and potentially useful qualities is the way it enhances creativity. So there's a widespread and ancient association of alcohol with creativity in the arts. And I review a body of very good empirical evidence that this is true, that actually alcohol helps us be more creative. So our ability to think laterally, to to solve problems that require making big leaps, creative leaps, reconnecting seemingly unrelated things, seems to improve with alcohol. It maxes out at about 0.08 blood alcohol content. So about two, about when you shouldn't drive anymore, about two drinks in. Um, And the mechanism of this seems to be the relaxation of control by the prefrontal cortex. So the the PFC is the villain, the prefrontal cortex in my story. (laughs) And as the PFC is a very important part of our brain, it's very good. It's the center of what uh, cognitive psychologists would call executive function or cognitive control. It's what allows us to stay focused, to remain on task, to delay gratification, uh, do all the things that we have to do as grown-ups and as successful human beings. The problem with the PFC is it allows us to focus in a laser-like fashion, but that's preventing us from seeing unusual things. We're making unusual connections. It impairs, it makes us better at doing tasks, but it makes it harder for us to see uh, connections and to connect uh, unrelated things. Then that's what creativity involves. And so if you look at, for instance, four-year-olds, four-year-olds has, have almost no PFC, um, which is why they can't tie their shoes and they can't get to school in the morning on time. Um, but they wildly outperform adults on creativity tasks. And so I argue that one way to look at alcohol is it's a cultural technology for allowing us to temporarily regain the mind of a four-year-old while still remaining adults. If you can, for two hours, turn down your PFC enough to start making creative connections and also feeling uh, disinhibited so you share these unusual ideas that you're happening with uh, having with other people, um, this is going to enhance both individual creativity and group creativity. And so there's a very good reason that artists and poets have been using alcohol for so long and why successful organizations, so I I describe in the book how successful organizations like Google make a place for alcohol in their professional environments because there's, there's a time to, you know, put your nose to the grindstone and really try to solve a problem. And there's a time when you've hit the wall to actually step away and downregulate your cognitive control for a little while. This can be really helpful for both individuals and groups. I love this phrase, downregulate cognitive control. Uh, it, 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 sounds, it sounds a lot more sophisticated than getting buzzed or tying one on. <laughs> and frankly, downregulating cognitive control <laughs> is exactly yeah. what I like to yeah. do at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's giving you a vacation. So yeah, that the the creativity function is is probably what motivated me to start thinking about writing this book. Uh, I was giving a talk at a Google campus, and it was on my earlier trade book, which is called "Try Not to Try," which is about this. One of the themes there is connection between spontaneity and creativity, or ability to problem solve. And in that context, I noted in passing this study that had just come out at that point, 2012 study, showing that if you bring people to about 0.08 BAC, they do better at uh, lateral thinking tasks, creativity tasks. 
And after the talk was over, the Q&A session started and this hand shot up in the front of the room. And uh, the first comment was, hey, do you know about the Balmer Peak? And I had never heard of this, but supposedly it's this idea that Steve Ballmer, the former CEO of Microsoft, discovered that his coding ability peaked at this really narrow blood alcohol content and and then fell off right after that if he drank too much. And so he would supposedly keep himself hooked up to an IV drip of vodka to keep himself right <laughs> at this really narrow BAC where he was a supernaturally good coder. Um, and that's almost entire, probably apocryphal, but it, it gets at this idea that there's a sweet spot of inebriation where you regain the kind of cognitive flexibility that children have. So I heard about Balmer Peak and then they took me on the tour of their campus and they said, okay, well, we're, we know where we're taking you first. And they took me to their whiskey room. They had this awesome room that was lined with, with really impressive single malt scotches and had beanbag chairs and a foosball table and all the usual stuff you'd expect. And they said, you know, as coding teams, when they ran into a problem, when they couldn't solve a problem, instead of just sitting at their computers and trying to grind through it, they would go to this whiskey room and they would pour themselves a glass of whiskey and they would sit in beanbag chairs and they would just shoot the shit. They would just talk about stuff. And often in that informal exchange with their cognitive control, gently getting down-regulated, someone would come up with a solution to the problem. And so that's when it kind of clicked for me that not only is there this connection between alcohol and creativity, but successful organizations know that and are actually using it in a, in a targeted fashion to deal with problems. Yeah, there's no evidence that Google's whiskey room is adversely impacting their success, I would say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think they're doing right. all right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was fascinated by some of these laboratory studies that actually show an increase in a capacity to perform certain creative tasks, which which is something that, you know, we all have a sense that that, you know, writers and artists enjoy and, and enjoy some cocktails um, uh, and maybe benefit from them. But I was fascinated to learn about this remote associates task, right? And actually, and actually for for the for listeners right now, I believe the structure of this is uh, the challenge is to come up with a fourth word associated with the following three words, peach, arm, and tar. Now, you and I have the benefit of having a beer in our hands. And yes, so we'll, we're going to outperform all <laughs> so of we're gonna out, unless they're drinking We're going to outperform well. non-drinking yeah. listeners, unless they're children, right? Yeah. So children and drinkers yeah. perform this task much more successfully than sober adults. Yes. Right. And, and the answer is pit, right? Uh, armpit, tar pit, beach pit, right? In this case, right? Yep. So the key to these tasks is there's no algorithm to get it right. It's not like a math problem. It's an insight task. So the only way to get to the solution is to kind of relax and have your brain deliver you the solution. And the people who do well in these studies who can solve them do report that it's an insight thing. They're not like systematically searching their vocabulary to figure out what's going on. They're just repeating the words and kind of relaxing. And then if they get it right, the word pops into their mind. The, the PFC doesn't want to let us do that. The PFC wants to keep us focused on, you know, grinding through algorithms and doing things step by step. 
but there are there are problems in life that can't be solved in that direct algorithmic grinding technique and that's that's where um, alcohol can be useful right so certain creative tasks we do better after a drink or two or three maybe even and we also are more likely to share ideas right and be less uh, judgmental of ideas yeah so that's the engine that's that's why alcohol I argue is an engine of group creativity as well because you've got you know you put a bunch of people you know, there's the Google Whiskey Room. I also tell the story of this big grant we got to study the cognitive science of religion, evolution of religion, uh, many years ago at UBC. And and I used to joke, say this semi-facetiously, but actually after doing the research for the book, I came to feel like it wasn't facetious at all, that the grant would never have happened if we hadn't finally gotten a pub on campus. Mm, that's right. Because at, at UBC, when I first arrived, there was no place on campus to drink, really. And then they built this pub right at the bus loop where you know everyone kind of passed by on their way home from work. And because of that, we, we started, a few colleagues of mine and I started meeting on Friday afternoons and having a beer or two. And it was... There's no way that this, you know, so we got a $3 million grant. We produced an award-winning article. Um, it arguably pushed the science of religion in new directions. And it all happened because we were sitting down, getting individually more creative. So mm-hmm, we were, mm-hmm. you know, in, as individuals, we were thinking of yep. new things. But we were disinhibited. So I would say something to my colleague who's, you know, world-renowned expert on cultural evolution. And I'm saying, you know what, I think you're wrong about that. Or, you know, (laughs) or I have this idea about cultural evolution, which is stupid because he knows all about it. I know nothing. And yet, so I would normally, I think, if I were completely sober, feel self-conscious about commenting on his field. But after a drink or two, I'll say it. And, you know, maybe he'll be like, maybe even mm. at first he'll be like, no, nah, that doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense. But then he'll start thinking about it. Or, you know, I'll share some seemingly trivial feature about Chinese history with them. And they'll go, oh, doesn't this illustrate this other point? And so so it's that the, the willingness to share, you know, quote unquote, stupid ideas is what needs to happen. Uh, you know, the other thing alcohol does is increase risk, risk taking. Which is bad if you're operating a motor vehicle. Yes. If you're trying to come up with a new grant mm-hmm. idea, it's actually probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it uh, risk taking is important in intellectual domains, and and that's why it's it's useful. You know, I, I was talking with um, the author Stephen Johnson last night, um, and he's he's written a bunch about um, coffee shops and bars and and uh, and so on. And he he also has commented to me that his um, that the, there's certain types of writing that he does most effectively sober, <laughs> right? But that yeah. some of his yeah. most lyrical kind of beautiful sentences and, and that some of his, his most kind of counterintuitive and maybe effective metaphors, he'll generate yeah. later in the evening, you know, having had a glass of yeah. wine. And, and he, we were talking about it last night and he, he pointed out that he wrote in his book, Farsighted, about... Um, all the evidence that neurodiversity improves collective thinking. So just getting together mm-hmm. with a bunch of colleagues in the, in, the, in the bar is itself a positive for collective thinking because of the, of the neurodiversity. But he was also pointing right. out that you can have chemical neurodiversity 
with your own different mental states, right? So if you if you oh, that's cool. if you occupy yeah, that's a great, that's a if you point. think about the same problem in different yeah. kind of chemically induced, you know, cognitive states, you're actually introducing a kind of neurodiversity to your own perspective on, on the on the topic. That's cool. That's a great way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's I mean a lot of I think all the best lines of my books were probably all written at some level of BAC. Um, but the, you know, then the editing ha happens on coffee, right? Yes. <laughs> During the daytime. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's an interesting way to put yeah. it. Um, you know, maybe su successful intellectual workers are able to use different substances to create neural diversity within themselves. Now, now for, for those listeners who may be skeptical about this kind of enhancement of creativity that uh, alcohol makes possible. I mean, we, we think there might be some broader historical evidence of this. And you cite uh, the work of an economist named Michael Andrews who pulls data on wet and dry counties during prohibition. And yeah. I think he was able to show pretty conclusively that the number of new patents were reduced by 15% annually in counties that went from wet to dry in the early, in the early yeah. years of prohibition. Was that right? That's correct. Yeah. So that's a nice study. It's correlational. Uh, but it's, I, what I like about it is it's, it's very clever. It's, a, it's taking advantage of a natural experiment yeah. essentially, which is that, um, we, we think of American prohibition as being something that happened all at once, you know, when that, that, that amendment was in, imposed, but it wasn't, it actually happened it happened over a long period of time and was imposed at different times at the county level and then at the state level. So he took just took advantage of that natural variation to look at differences in patent applications and finds this drop-off in what seems like a drop-off in innovation when prohibition is imposed. And his view is that what's happening, you know, people didn't stop drinking. They went, you know, they turned to bootleg liquor or they, you know, made stuff at home. Uh, but what they couldn't do anymore is go to saloons and talk over alcohol. And so he thinks really what prohibition did was um, the damage that prohibition did to collective innovation was the elimination of collective drinking. You, you take that away and you're going to see this decline in innovation. And, and I, I predict in the book, I, I say, I predict the, the you know, COVID lockdowns. Yeah. We're going to look back and see the same effect. So all of our professional in-person conferences were canceled. People aren't weren't able to go to the pubs and drink together anymore. It's it's very much like prohibition. Like drinking's been driven into the home, and it's been made a solitary pursuit. I think we're going to see negative effects of that for years. Well, the 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 pub as a kind of third space uh, really comes out. Uh, comes off well in this book, <laughs> right? And and there's this incredible yeah. study of the correlation between the frequency that people go to local pubs and other kind of health markers and so on in England, right? And it, it yeah, that's that's Robin Dunbar's work, right? Dunbar, the Dunbar number, um, yep, extraordinary, yep. yeah. And and, and that's uh, and boy, that that really was quite emphatic, right? That basically like. You, you, you know, the people who regularly attend their local pub uh, have much more vibrant communities or, or uh, any number of other positives. 
Yeah, absolutely. So it, it suggests that there's this healthy style of drinking. So they're drinking beers and wines or drinking them in a, in a group setting where there's food and it's relaxed. It's open. It's, you know, if you look at a, a British pub or a French cafe, it's just all sorts of people there. There are families with children mm, there. Yeah. There are old people sitting alone with a glass of wine, reading the newspaper. There are kids on dates. There are, you know, colleagues meeting after work. It's inclusive. So it's not, you know, I think a lot, the saloon was kind of, it was a male only domain. Mm, and yeah. that was, you know, that was negative in a lot of ways. Dunbar argues that there's, you know, two kind of styles of, of drinking establishments in Britain. One are these kind of fancy bars where people drink more cocktails mm -hmm, and it's kind mm -hmm, of more fashionable and cool. Yeah. And those don't seem to have the positive effects. Um, the positive effects come from pubs, like kind of pubs and where people know you. Um, so, you know, it's, you go there regularly, you run into neighbors and friends. And I think that one of the problems with North America is that we, at least outside of major cities, mm -hmm. we tend not to have those spaces. No, I think I think that's so important. The um, these characteristics. It's really like the Cheers. You you, you may I don't know. If, yeah, I was just thinking right? of Cheers. Yeah, I was just thinking about the popularity of Cheers is probably because it gave people who lived in the suburbs a taste of what it's like to have a local. You know, have a place that you go to regularly. And and, and it seems. I mean, the idea of introducing a, a sitcom today. That's all about interactions of people in a bar, <laughs> you know. It, it yeah, feels it, it feels happen, kind of yeah, kind of yeah. uh, displaced in time, and and but I and I think there's a message here though that that the erosion of bar culture of of the local pub type bar culture yeah. is a real loss. That this is that one wants this very specific kind of inclusive, accessible beer and wine drinking environment, opposed to everybody you know, drinking at home in the suburbs uh, or, yeah. or or drinking hard liquor in a much more purposeful way. This is not great news for me because I do love a little bourbon myself, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm a fan of scotch, but, and, and Negronis. I mean, Negronis gave me the beginning of my book, but um, yeah, you just gotta be, it's not that I don't think people should not drink cocktails or uh, scotch. It's just, I think we tend to not recognize how how potentially dangerous they are. So I just think they need to be approached with a lot more caution than than beer or wine. Not only does alcohol make us more creative, it also makes us more attractive, both to other people and to ourselves. After the break, Edward explains why. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. So Edward's first big idea is that alcohol, the desire to make it and drink it, gave us civilization. His second big idea is that wetting your whistle makes you more creative. 
Now, in his third big idea, he argues that alcohol plays a key role in our collective social interactions. So we shake hands. The practice of shaking hands is to show that we are not carrying a weapon in our dominant hand. So I shake hands with you. I don't have a knife. I don't have a dagger in my hand. For the same reason, we also, when we're negotiating a treaty historically or uh, uh, trying to have a truce in a, in a conflict, we sit down and we do shots together. We drink together. Uh, so alcohol and uh, bonding and especially creating bonds between unrelated groups or potentially suspicious groups is a crucial function of alcohol. And there's there's two mechanisms going on here. One is the same thing with creativity. We're, we're turning down, alcohol down-regulates, or turns down the function of the PFC. And this has the effect of making it harder to lie. So without a PFC, you have trouble lying because lying requires cognitive control. You have to not blurt out the truth. It requires good working memory. You have to keep in mind the false thing that you're telling someone rather than just reading reality um, or consulting your memory. Um, so it's much harder to lie when your PFC is impaired. It's also, this is maybe a little more counterintuitive, it's easier to detect lies when your PFC is downregulated. Uh, when we're trying consciously to detect lies, we're not very good at it. Um, it turns out we, we look at the wrong cues, we tend to focus on the wrong things. And we do a better job when we just relax and kind of attend to a broader bandwidth of social information. The other function is also disinhibition. So the, the prefrontal cortex is in charge of inhibiting behavior. If you take it out, you're going to be seeing emotions and desires and thoughts that would normally get filtered by the PFC, by the conscious controlling mind. Um, these things come out. And so we have a, a strong sense that when someone is drunk or at least mildly inebriated, we're seeing a truer version of them. And there, there's reason to believe that this is actually the case. Another thing that alcohol is doing is boosting endorphins and serotonins. And so this makes us like other people more. We find them more attractive. We find them funnier and smarter. And we also like ourselves more. We find ourselves funnier and more attractive when we've been drinking. And this helps with sociality. It helps people get past um, uh, inhibitions in terms of just confidence, social confidence. But it also increases, there's good, I review some empirical evidence that it increases interpersonal bonding. It increases the sense of being part of a group and having a group identity. And this had, I argued, very important functions over the course of our history. Well, this business of finding other people more attractive and being more confident resonates uh, for my younger self. Because I remember sometime in my 30s realizing that I had never had a first kiss entirely sober. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I, I think I may have used that as a pickup line. I think I might have said to someone, "This could be the first time in my life <laughs> that I ever had a yeah, first okay. kiss." There was. That's a, that's I think there was an move. angle yeah. there. But, but nonetheless, yeah. like this is clearly uh, a broad phenomenon. Yeah. So people use. I mean. In the last chapter of the book, I talk about the dark side of Dionysus and all the problems with alcohol use, all of the excesses it can enable. And I talk about the problem, especially, you know, university campus drinking is if you want to invent a bad way to drink, that yep. would be it. Yeah. Taking a bunch of kids and, you know, most of them still don't have fully developed PFCs. 
they're away from their families and all kinds of normal social networks. And they're drinking uh, distilled liquors out of opaque plastic cups and a culture that's encouraging them to get drunk. Um, if, if you wanted to design a culture to make alcohol as negative as possible, that would yep, be it. Yep. And so it's really unhealthy and it's, you know, all sorts of bad things happen when, when people drink in those situations, you know, and then in, in professional contexts, the association between inebriation and sexual harassment or sexual assault, um, those are all, those are all real connections and they're things we should be really worried about. But I think what's been lost in that, uh, conversation has been the fact that consenting adults use alcohol to enhance intimacy and enhance um, enjoyment of of sexual and romantic relations in way and all the time. And it's a really important tool. There's a reason why um, you know candlelight dinners and and wine. Um, you know you don't have candlelight dinners and drink coffee. <laughs> and there's a really good reason for that. Um, so I, I think that it's, you know, we've got to keep in mind how responsible consenting adults are using small amounts of alcohol to help enhance uh, this, kind, this kind of bonding that's, that's important. Well, so turning, turning to the downsides, you point out that um, there are two developments in relatively recent history that have made alcohol more pernicious, more dangerous. What are those two, two developments? Dis distillation and isolation are these, I call them the two, the twin banes of modernity. So distillation, alcohol, alcoholic beverages have traditionally come with a built-in safety feature, which is that they can't get above a certain strength. Traditionally, we've been drinking for almost all of our history mostly beer type things that would come in around two, 3% ABV. And if we had access to fruit wines, they have more sugar, so you can get higher with mm -hmm. those, but those typically wouldn't get more than like eight, 8%, eight mm -hmm. maybe, mm -hmm. maybe 9%. But distillation's a way around this natural limit of alcohol strength. So basically you boil a mixture, you boil a beer and you capture the alcohol, which boils off first. And then you do it again, and you do it again. And if you repeat that enough times, you get almost pure alcohol. You can get in the 90s percent. Um, and that's what vodka is, you know, mm -hmm. clocking mm -hmm. at about 90% ABV. And these are just orders of magnitude stronger than what we've evolved to deal with. And so our, I argue that most of the benefits of alcohol come at this sweet spot of about 0.08 BAC. Yeah. So that's where, you know, you, you've done regular your PFC, you're getting the endorphin, serotonin kick, you're feeling good, you're disinhibited, but you're still, you know, you're connected to reality. Um, you're not dangerously out of your senses. How, how many of these India pale ales would that be? Yeah. So this thing, if I was drinking this in a concerted yeah. way, I could, I would get past 0.08 if I was drinking a few of these, but generally it's about two. Okay. So about two drinks that feels in right. is yeah. uh, point away. Yeah. Um, and if you're drinking a beer or, you know, a reasonably strength wine, it's hard to, to go past point away. There's just limits to how much volume you can consume, right? Um, and, and all the time, your body's uh, detoxifying. It's turning the alcohol into other stuff. So, so there's this, 
you can kind of safely hover at 0.08 if you're drinking beers and wines. If you're doing shots of tequila, you can blow past 0.08 in like 10 minutes and very quickly be into dangerous territory. And that's when you, it's really hard to black out or kill yourself with beer and wine. Um, it's very easy to do it with distilled liquors. And if you have alcoholic tendencies, that enhanced kick you're getting from getting a taste of something that's 80, 90% ABV is really dangerous as well. It just makes, makes these, these uh, liquids so much more seductive. Um, so dis I'm, I'm arguing that it's possible because distillation is so recent, we haven't adapted genetically or culturally to it yet. Um, so, that's, so that's the first dangerous distillation. The second has to do with this drinking alone problem. It's been very rare to almost non-existent historically for individuals to have private access to alcohol. When we drink, we've been drinking in public communal environments that, where the drinking is, is regulated ritually. Mm, yeah. Either there's someone in charge of making toasts at certain times, and that's the only time you're allowed to drink, or there's someone like in the Greek symposium, these wine gatherings, the symposiarch, the person who was hosting it, was in charge of deciding when to circulate the wine and how strong it was because they would they would water their wine. Which down. is extraordinary because you're because not only were they drinking wine and not hard liquor, but they were watering down their wine, right? Yeah, they felt that wine was too dangerous and and um, yeah, and so they 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 were actually t basically taking grape wine. I said I hadn't thought of it that way. They were taking grape wine and bringing it down to that safe level of kind of two to three percent ABV. Um, through through diluting it, which so, is and meanwhile our contemporary beer and wine is twice that potent, right? And we're often yeah, and we're yeah. often moving to the hard stuff. So so the ancients were drinking much less concentrated alcohol, and in a social environment where it was someone was watching and regulating, right? So um, in a Chinese traditional Chinese banquet, uh, it's rude not to do the shot when the toast is made. But you don't do you don't do shots at will. You don't just sit there drinking out of your yep. cup. You your cup sits there until someone makes a toast, and and that has the effect of regulating your drinking. And so, what's novel in the same way distillation is novel, the fact that I can go to a drive-through liquor store and load up my car with vodka and drive home yep. and just have it here in my house and drink as much as I want is just is crazy. It's like yep. completely unprecedented historically. And I think, you know, this has already been a problem, I think, especially in North America, um, but, you know, throughout the industrialized world. But then I think the COVID lockdowns have given us a kind of hypercharged version of that, where we've been you know, completely isolated and stuck at home. And yet we still have access. I can, you know, during my lockdowns, I could order, I could have liquor delivered to my house. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's really uniquely dangerous situation to be in. Alcohol has always sat on this kind of razor's edge between benefit and cost, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? It has these positive benefits, but it, it poses these serious costs. The, the calculus may change if we're in a world awash with distilled spirits where people are drinking at home alone. Absolutely. Well, and, and you point out that I think, I think two of the greatest dangers that I think of when I think of alcohol are sexual assault and drunk driving. Um, mm -hmm. and 
as you point out, those are not risks that exist in the same way with other with other drugs or other intoxicants. Um, how do you how do you think that we can benefit from all these upsides of alcohol and and reduce or eliminate the, these risks? Well, first of all, be like the Greeks. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if I want to water down my wine, uh, but maybe start drinking, um, you know, lower alcohol wines. I mean, you know, like European style wines tend to be lower alcohol mm -hmm. than stuff that's produced in California mm -hmm. and Australia. Mm -hmm. And those are, those, it's not, you know, it's probably no accident that they drink in a more moderate fashion in Europe. Um, I was actually talking yesterday to some guys who uh, do a podcast focused on beer, and they, they're really involved in the craft beer community. And I'd never heard this term before, but they, they said there's been a movement toward, I think they call them session ales or something. But basically, I mean, craft for a long time, it, seemed, it seems to me like craft beer has been about making more and more powerful beers. Right, right. You know, we've got a triple IPA that's 10.5% ABV. Um, and, but apparently there's been kind of a pushback and people say, no, actually we wanna just be able to drink beers with our friends and drink a bunch of beers and have them taste good, unlike you know, Coors Light, but have it come in at the, about the ABV of something like that. And so there's been a movement toward consciously making less alcoholic beers in order to make drinking more social and pleasurable and safe. So there's things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, my, my version of that is I have a policy that Rufus can have as many drinks as he likes as long as he has a glass of water between each drink. Um, yeah, so that's a great strategy. I have a good friend who does the same thing when we would go out drinking. He, he made it just a practice to, he had to get a sparkling water in between any drink. And that's a great, very clever, it's a way of your, your present PFC dominate itself to impose limits on the drunk Rufus, right? <laughs> You know, yeah. your present day Rufus yeah. is worried about that yeah. guy. Well, well, well future to... Rufus tomorrow morning would like to make sure that uh, yeah. the present Rufus has a glass of yeah. water between his drink. And it, but the, um, yeah. uh, but it's all, you know, it, it both takes time to consume 12 ounces of water and it, and it yeah. tends to sometimes result in a trip to the restroom, you know, so it's like, right. you're, yeah. like no, it you have to kind of slow down the whole process. Um, but the, um, but I love there, there was so much, so many kind of clever, clever systems over the course of human history. I loved your observation that, that the Greeks used these shallow wine cups that required yeah, enormous yeah. motor control. So it was almost like a self-governing system, like the, like the yeah. motor control required <laughs> to actually balance the cup. Yeah. It was like, and it, it occurred to me reading that, that maybe the modern martini glass might have a similar yeah, utility. Like, like the martini yeah, glass yeah. is really engineered to spill. <laughs> right. It's yeah, like, yeah, it's, it's true. It's super uh, awkward. That's interesting. I mean, it, it, yeah. it, it, it couldn't yeah. be a worse design if your objective is to keep the liquid in the in the glass. But maybe that's precisely it's self-regulating. Yeah. Like I'll never forget my when I was in high school, my friend's mother said to me, and she was a very beautiful woman in my opinion at the time. She said, Rufus, do you know what martinis and breasts have in common? And I I, oh, I turned purple and said, Well, well, no, I don't. Yeah. She said, you know, one's not enough, three is too many. Um but the, 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 you know, it, it's, it's hard to balance a martini glass after your third. Yeah, that's interesting. So that's, yeah, once you start spilling your martini, you know that you need to stop and have a sparkling water. Yep. So to, so to finish up here, we want to have a culture that encourages responsible, collective drinking with some degree of moderation 
And we want to be extremely mindful of, of course, the dangers of operating heavy equipment yeah. and, being, and, and being respectful to others. We want to avoid isolated drinking. We also want to level the playing field for non-drinkers. So yes. um, you know, there's really good advice that I draw on at the end from this uh, Carol Souls, who works, works in the tech industry, you know, about really, again, simple strategies like if you have cocktails, make sure you have virgin cocktails that are just as available, you know, just no one's stigmatized for drinking them. Just make sure there's water available. Make sure it's out there. If you have beer, make sure you have non-alcoholic beers that are just as easily available. There's lots of ways to to make uh, drinking events more open and less intimidating for non-drinkers that I think we need to explore more. It makes it makes a huge amount of sense. And even and even for those of us who do drink, but would like to be more prudent yeah. about yeah. that process. And uh, so, so all of that makes perfect sense. And in, and in these final moments of the conversation, yeah. you call yourself at one point in the book, a philosophical hedonist. Yes. Right. And so I think I, 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 can, I can see and read in these pages that, that of course, you know, you're sounding all the right cautionary notes, which is really necessary because we all know that the costs of reckless alcohol consumption are enormous. But there's also... A, a part of you that just really wants to say, hey, from a cultural perspective, uh, we need to be able to, to smile upon, you know, uh, pleasure and revelry and a little bit of imprudence uh, as, as our ancestors did. Yeah, so I don't think we make enough room for that in our modern lives. Um, so calling myself a philosophical hedonist, it's the, the word hedonist has connotations in modern English that um, are not really what I'm getting at. So it's not just kind of indulgence in food and wine and sex and kind of pleasure just all the time, um, especially physical pleasure. Um, you know, the hedonists were a school of ancient Greek philosophy. And they were not, you wouldn't want to party with the Greek hedonists. They were actually not that fun. <laughs> I mean, from a modern perspective. Um, Interesting. They, you know, they want... So hedonism as a philosophical position is just that the purpose of life is pleasure. But I use philosophical hedonist to, to pick out a position that has a very broad view of what sorts of pleasures there are in the world. So for the Greek hedonists, they, the primary pleasure was intellectual inquiry and philosophy. Unlike them, I'm a little more optimistic about bodily pleasures and, and culinary pleasures. But I, I similarly think that, you know, maximizing pleasure means also uh, includes things like intellectual curiosity and solving problems and talking about ideas with other people and, you know, spending time with your kids and, uh, you know, friends. This is all, it's not about sex and drugs and rock and roll, but sex and drugs and rock and roll have their place too. <laughs> so I think we've been a little bit too... Um, there's been, I talk about what I call this neo-ascetic attitude among a lot of liberals where, you know, we're just maximizing all the time. So we're super healthy. We get up and we do sunrise yoga and we drink, you know, smoothies and we watch our alcohol consumption and we we're super fit and we're positive all the time. And 
that's okay, but it almost leads to this treadmill-like existence where we're, we're constantly trying to maximize, we're constantly trying to get better at the skills that we need to have um, to succeed. And we don't acknowledge enough, I think, the need to just turn off for a little while, um, to, to shut down the PFC, to experience bodily pleasure, the kind of pleasure you get, that, that initial rush you get when you have a glass of wine. Um, the first few sips, your endorphins start to kick up, your serotonin start to get released. Um, you get that rush. That's a, that's a part of human life, and it's something that should be celebrated. We need to not be shy or embarrassed by the fact that we like to just relax and feel good. Every once in a while, there's nothing. There's nothing to be ashamed of about that. Well, um, Nietzsche, Nietzsche apparently said those dancing were thought to be insane by those who could not hear the music. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think sometimes a, a beer or a glass of wine helps helps you hear the music. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, well, well, Edward, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Such a fascinating book. Such a fascinating conversation. Um, and uh, thank you for sharing it with us. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Would you like to hear what Edward thinks are the five biggest ideas from Drunk? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out his book bite. And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of hundreds of groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. This app is getting better and better, folks. Check it out. Search for the next big idea in your app store. If you really like what we're doing, please tell your friends, your Uber drivers, strangers in the street. And if you have a chance, leave us a review and a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. Special thanks to Edward Slingerland. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kovnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Emma Erdbrink. I'm your mixologist, Rufus Griscom. See you next week. One.